Hey everybody, welcome to Hope. Uh, my name is Scott Reigns. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, so glad you're joining us for worship today. It's graduation season, and my mailbox is filled with uh, invitations to grad parties of so many families in this church who have sons or daughters graduating, and I am one of you this year. I've seen that stupid slideshow three times now. I'm crying harder every time I see it. I don't know what's well, not fair that I have to come up and talk after that. Anyway, um, Kylie, our daughter, is graduating from Centennial High School. You might have seen her in the slideshow. That's the first weekend of June. Next weekend, our family is going up to Northfield, Minnesota. Our oldest, uh, Dalton, is graduating from St. Olaf College. On Friday, last, uh, two days ago, we were at Northeast Elementary School because Saffron was graduating from fifth grade. And so yeah, it's really graduation season. And next year we do it again. Hadley will graduate from college and uh, Kimball will graduate from high school and our house will be empty and quiet and the Lord is good to us. Uh, <laughs> knock on wood. Okay. Um, here's the thought experiment I want to do. Uh, imagine it's 10 summers from now. We're heading into the summer of 2032. And the class of 22 is getting ready for their 10-year high school or 10-year college reunion. And they go to the class reunion and they talk to some classmates, some of whom they haven't talked to for a decade. And on the drive home, they're reflecting on some of those conversations and they're like, oh, that person, that conversation I had with my classmate, they have not changed one bit since they were 18 years old, since they were 22 years old. Exactly the same. What an absolute travesty that would be. One of our core values at Hope says following Jesus is a growing experience. Can, can we all say that together? Following Jesus is a growing experience. And part of what that means is we never graduate, at least not in the way we've come to kind of define that term. As Lindsay was talking about, most of the time we talk about graduation, we think it's over. We're celebrating what's over, what's finished. And so educators prefer a different word, it seems like. These days we talk more about commencement than we do graduation. And a reminder that, yes, we're finishing something, but more importantly, something new is about to begin. So you may not have any connection whatsoever to uh, graduations at all this year, and, and if you do, that's fine. If you have a bunch of graduations, that's fine too. The thing I think we all have in common, I want to challenge all of us to believe today is your commencement day. Because when it comes to living a life of faith every day, every hour, Every moment, every relational interaction we have is an opportunity, by God's grace, for us to change, for us to experience transformation, for us to start again. Uh, we're in a message series called Can You Relate? The Bible reading was from Romans chapter 12, and kind of the middle of Romans chapter 12, this is a chapter you could probably do an entire year's worth of messages on the ideas that you uh, discover in this chapter. In the middle of it, it's all about how do we relate to one another in healthy ways? How do we relate to one another in healthy ways? And in order to get to a place in our lives where we are relating to each other in healthy ways, it's important to go back the, the larger context of, of Romans 12. What's Paul talking about at the beginning? And at the beginning of Romans 12, he's talking about commencement. Let's read verse 2 out loud together. It's on the screen. Read it with me. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. If we're going to become people who relate to the people in our lives in healthier and healthier ways all the time, part of what that means is we have to give God permission to do this transforming work in our lives. We have to give God permission to change us. 
And the only real problem with that is uh, most of us resist change with every ounce of being that we have. And do you ever wonder why? Why are we so resistant to change? The Bible actually has some wisdom for us on this. Uh, the verse right before, the very beginning of uh, Romans 12. Again, let's read this out loud together. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Part of what we see Paul doing as he's setting up this chapter, Romans 12, and getting us to a place where he gives us a description of what healthy relationships look like, he starts with the body. Everybody say body. body. The Christian faith is an embodied faith. It always has been, it always must be an embodied faith. So here's Paul saying, give your bodies to God in verse 1. Verse 2, let God change you, transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. He's talking about our brains, also part of our bodies. And so our faith is an embodied faith. Where does the human body start? Where does it come from? Go back to the very beginning in Genesis uh, chapter 1, chapter 2, the account of the creations of the heavens and the earth, uh, the account of the creation of all things, including human beings. Here's what Genesis 2 verse 7 says. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. I'm absolutely convinced when we're reading through the Bible, we read too quickly. We read to get through the Word of God rather than reading to get the Word of God through us. And so I want us to slow down and I want us to think about what's actually going on in this very important, deeply theological verse. How can this be deeply theological? Let, let's talk about it for a little bit. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. So uh, yesterday I got to officiate at a wedding. I get to do that a lot, one of the best parts of my job. And often at weddings, the scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 13, uh, the famous love chapter. Same Paul who writes Romans 12 writes 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love never gives up. Love endures through all circumstances. It's this wonderful description. Again, it's, it's like Paul saying, here's how we relate to one another. Here's how we love one another in, in healthy ways. Did you notice the first word that Paul uses to describe love in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient. Love is patient. In, in other words... The work that God does in our life is this patient, oftentimes slow, much slower than we want it to be, work of forming us and transforming us into the people that God wants us to be. And that's a big part of what we see happening in the creation account. The Lord God forms the man from the dust of the ground. And I, I picked this picture on purpose. I don't know what you think of, what kind of fills your mind when you think about God, but I want you to imagine God as this creative, carefree, artistic, childlike being that God gets down in the mud joyfully. Like, you remember when you were a kid? You, could, you couldn't resist mud puddles. And then you become an adult and you're like, eh, stay away from the mud. Ah. But when you're a kid, it's the best thing. What can we play with? It would be great. What if God is that way? as God goes about this work of the creation of all things, this joyful, creative, carefree kind of place. So God forms the man from the dust of the ground. And again, in, in Hebrew, the Hebrew words for the man is Adam, Adam. 
And that's why the name Adam is there in Genesis chapter 2. And pretty quickly, God notices the man is lonely. We've got to do something about this. Does God have the power to snap God's fingers and cure Adam of Adam's loneliness? Absolutely. Is that what God does? No. It's fascinating what God does. Do you remember this? Here's verse 19. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. Aardvark. <laughs> Anteater. Baboon. Chihuahua. <laughs> do you ever... Do you guys, how long do you think it took the man to name all the animals? You ever think about that? And yeah, are, like, are we supposed to take this literally? Is th did this really happen? Did God, I don't know. But it's in here, and we have to think about it. What, why is it in there? What's going on? God's trying to cure Adam of Adam's loneliness, and he makes Adam name all the animals first. We're on our way to Eve, but before we get to Eve, God does this patient, slow, loving, formational work in the man's life. Uh, I, I heard somebody say it one time, um, God doesn't give us the shortcuts that we really want. You cannot microwave maturity. That's tweetable, people. <laughs> you cannot microwave maturity. And this is what God wants. God wants to mature us. God wants to grow us. And God often, God has the power to make it happen instantaneously, and sometimes it does. But more often than not, more often, because God loves us, it's a slow work of forming and transforming us into the people God wants us to be. Lord God forms the man from the dust of the ground. And that verse goes on to say, then the Lord God breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils. So part of what we see here, if we go slow enough to notice it, the body comes first. In order for there to be nostrils, there has to be a body. The body comes first, and then God breathes the breath of life into that nostrils, into that body. It becomes a living, breathing, thinking human being. Body comes first. Now, modern neuroscience is catching up to what the Bible's been teaching us for millennia. Uh, the people who study our brains and how everything is wired inside us, they've known for quite a while now there's something called the autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system is responsible for those things that our body does and we don't have to think about it. Like breathing, for example. Most of the time we don't think about breathing. If we change the way we think, we can regulate our breathing. We can speed it up, we can slow it down, but most of the time we breathe without thinking about it. Same is true for our heartbeat. Can you imagine if we had to think our heart into beating? It's time to beat. It's time to beat. It's time to beat. We'd never do anything else. It's time to beat. It's time to beat. You couldn't do it. You couldn't work. You couldn't relate. You could. So thank goodness for the autonomic nervous system. It controls our digestive system. Our uh, threat detectors are connected to the autonomic nervous system. When we sense danger, uh, when we think something isn't right, I am not safe, I need protection, our autonomic nervous system kicks in and we go into fight, flight, or freeze without even thinking about it. Uh, here's a silly example. 
About a decade ago, our family was in Chicago. We wanted to go to the top of the uh, Willis Tower. I'd been there before when I was a kid in the 80s, and it was called the Sears Tower, but I hadn't been back since. They remodeled everything, and they, part of the remodeling of the sky deck, they did these glass ledges, enclosures that stick out from the wall of uh, the Willis Tower. So we thought, let's take our kids to the top of that. So you go to the top, you get off the elevator, and Kemble and Shaden were probably seven and six uh, the summer that we were doing this. And as soon as the elevator doors open, they make a beeline right for these glass enclosures. And my family thinks sometimes I embellish stories that I tell you when I'm preaching. This is exactly what happened. I much more slowly make my way over there. By the time I get without about 20 feet from these ledges, I see my sons wrestling on the floor of this glass enclosure, and my autonomic nervous system kicks in, and without even thinking about it, I start to back away from the edge. Uh, something dangerous is happening there, and I'm getting away from it. I'm just like, save yourself. And so I, I'm back like by the elevators, just trying to sink into the wall, thinking that will keep me safe. Wendy, my wife, comes over. She's like, are you okay? You, your face is pale. I'm like, I am scared to death. I'm in survival mode here. I, I tell you all of that to tell you this. A very similar thing happens in our relationships all the time. A very similar thing happens in our relationships all the time. We, somebody will say something. Somebody will do something. And we will respond to what has been said or what has been uh, done. We'll respond without even really thinking about it. Uh, let me say that again. As you are relating to your spouse or parents to children, bosses to employees, colleagues to colleagues, friends to friends, there are times when somebody does something, somebody says something, and your autonomic nervous system kicks in and you respond instinctually without even thinking about it. You are reacting without thinking. And most of the time when that happens, I shouldn't say most of the time, sometimes when that happens, it's, it's good, it's necessary. Sometimes when that happens, it's completely unhealthy and it's something that you, and it's immature and it's something that you need to be working on. Paul says at the beginning of Romans 12, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Well, part of what Paul's trying to say is we have to learn to pay attention to this kind of stuff. The things that we're doing without even, like if it's true, uh, most of the time I breathe without thinking about it, but if I change the way I think, I can regulate my breathing. Is there a similar reality in the way we relate to one another? Most of the time I'm relating without even thinking about it, but what if I change the way I think and I pay attention to that? Why am I responding to this particular situation the way I'm responding to it? There's a guy named uh, Kurt Thompson. He's a medical doctor and a psychiatrist in uh, Virginia, and he is a, a passionate follower of Jesus Christ, absolutely committed to helping people grow in their ability to relate to one another in healthier and healthier ways. And he is an expert on interpersonal neurobiology. <laughs> Isn't that great? He, he's an expert in helping people see the way their brain is impacting the way they relate to the people in their lives. He's got a podcast called uh, Being Known. I'd, if you like podcasts, check it out if you're interested in this kind of stuff. Uh, it is not at all an entertaining podcast. He is dry, he is academic, and uh, super intelligent and smart, but like I... He's also very practical. And at the end of most episodes, he says, here are three things that you can do to 
change the way you think and to invite God into this transformation of work. If you don't like podcasts, he writes books, Anatomy of the Soul, Soul of Shame, Soul of Desire. Uh, I want to show you a clip. He is uh, giving a speech at Biola University and recounting a story uh, when his daughter was 16 years old. Uh, she now is an adult and works with him, but uh, this is a story, an interaction they had when she was 16. Take a look. A memory that I have uh, of uh, my experience with my own daughter when she was about 16 years of age. And we're standing in our kitchen. And uh, I asked her, this was on a Friday evening, and it's important because several days before this, I had, knowing that she's a teenager, I had warned her that we as a family were going to have a work detail with our church that we were going to have to be at at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning. This is not good news for a 16-year-old girl here. So I figured I would start this process early in the week. I introduced the subject to her on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I figure I'm doing my job as a parent. Friday night, I asked the simple question, what time would you like for me to get you up in the morning? The outcome of this conversation was just withering fire from her about why it just didn't make any sense that we were doing this tomorrow morning and so forth and so on. And I, of course, was confused because I thought I'd done my homework and had behaved right as a parent. What I wasn't counting on was that as she started to talk, my becoming aware that I was becoming as rigid as a board standing in my kitchen. And as I started to pay attention literally to my back and my stomach and my jaw, I became aware that something was, I mean, it was clear that something was not okay in the conversation. But it was the first time that I felt like I had a way to diffuse the conversation, not so much by paying attention to what she was actually saying to me, but by paying attention actually to what my body was doing. And so I said to her, you know, I think I'm not doing very well in this conversation. This would be one of those rare moments when I actually parented in a way that would be reasonable. I would like to go over and sit down and have a conversation about this. Now, mind you, it's 10 o'clock at night. I'm headed to bed. I'm not thinking about having a 20-minute conversation with my daughter to answer the question, what time will I get you up in the morning? However, when we sat down, it was clear that everything about our body postures changed. And the very act of changing our body posture, because it was one of those rare occasions where I was paying attention to my own, I noticed that I felt less relaxed. We stopped the conversation that we had. We took a break. We, you know, 15 seconds, walked over, sat down in more comfortable chairs. And that gave me enough breathing space to back up and begin to ask her different questions about what, why she was upset. Just moving our bodies, moving the conversation from one part of the house to a different part of the house, changed the whole relational dynamic. Now turn to somebody close to you and tell them, uh, you chose wisely. <laughs> you, chose, you, you chose wisely because last night at 5 o'clock and this morning at 8 o'clock at this part of the sermon, I made everybody get up and move to a different section of the worship center. I'm not going to do that for you because we got all the baptism kids and, you know, we just want them to stay sleeping. But it was fascinating to see what happened 
just by having people move and the conversations that happened as they're getting to a different seat and all the emails that I got, the angry emails that I got already. No, um, I haven't gotten any. So uh, we're, we're in Romans 12 and Paul's talking about this idea What's the connection between our bodies and our minds and living a life of faith? And part of what he's saying is we've got to start paying attention to what we're paying attention to. And, or sometimes what we're not paying attention to. Because as we do this, as we learn to change the way we think, pay attention to things that uh, maybe we haven't been paying attention to or start to understand why I'm paying attention to the things that I'm paying attention to, this is when the transformation happens. This is when we graduate relationally, because as we start to understand, oh, other parts of my body are actually communicating to me uh, in ways uh, that cause me to relate uh, in these patterns that I've developed over the years, we can actually learn to develop new ways of relating, new patterns of uh, relating. I want to just read this passage to you again from uh, Romans chapter 12. It begins this way. Don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Most of us are pretending. We're reacting without thinking in our relationships. And it means we're not really, maybe put it this way, there is a deeper way of loving the people in our lives than what we're experiencing. Don't just pretend to love others, really love them, hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good, love each other with genuine affection, and take delight in honoring each other. Rejoice in our confident hope, be patient in trouble, and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable, and do all you can to live in peace with everyone. Again, this is Paul's description of what does it look like when we are relating to one another in, in healthy ways. I know there's not a, a lot of NBA fans in central Iowa, but the NBA playoffs are happening, and some really good basketball players like Steph Curry and Luka Doncic and uh, Jason Tatum and Jimmy Butler are trying to lead their teams to uh, the NBA finals. And if you are a sports fan at all, watch at least one of these games, because it is ridiculous how good they are. Yeah, maybe they don't play defense, but their offense is un the shots that they will take and the shots that they will make. It's, uh, Steph Curry sometimes will launch a three-pointer, and as soon as the ball leaves his fingertips, he will turn around and run down to the other end of the court before it even splashes through the net because he's in the zone. He is so good. He is so confident. He just knows it's going in. And I wonder if this uh, description in the middle of Romans 12 about... What does it look like to relate to one another in healthy ways? Is Paul saying, this is what it looks like for us to be in the zone relationally. This is what it looks like for us to be in the zone in a spiritual standpoint. Now, I don't know about you, I find myself slipping in and out of the zone all the time. And so offering our bodies to God, uh, letting God transform us by changing the way we think, this is a way that God helps us get in the zone and stay in the zone for longer and longer uh, periods of time all of the time. Uh, let me try to explain uh, what I mean. 
So again, people who study our brains say there is an optimal zone of brain activation. Imagine this blue line is just kind of monitoring uh, the activity of our brain throughout a, a, a typical day. And there are some times in the day when our brain is like firing on all cylinders, when you're running at the state track meet, like a lot of people from Hope Hankany were doing uh, this last week, uh, when you are, I don't know, interviewing for your dream job. When you're getting ready for a date that you're super excited about, you're, you're creative, your brain is active, it's firing on all cylinders, it's all good. Other times in the course of a day, uh, maybe you are, you know, at a worship service. <laughs> and, and it's still in the healthy range, but you're just a little more relaxed and you're sipping your coffee or it's at the end of the day, you're having a spot of tea or whatever you do at the end of the day to wind down. And they call this the optimal zone of brain activity, uh, sometimes they refer to it as the window of tolerance. The window of tolerance. Because every day we have these stressors that enter into our life. We have things that irritate us that enter into our lives. And, and when we're in the optimal zone, when we're in the window of tolerance, we're able to manage our emotions and we're able to cope with the uh, things that happen that might be negative. We're able to do that in healthy ways. But sometimes... Sometimes we find ourselves responding to these stressors and it, it pushes us out of the optimal zone, out of the window of tolerance. Let's talk about babies for a little bit. Now, what are the stressors in a baby's life? Now, somebody's going to drop water on my head. No. Uh, I'm hungry. I'm tired. Um, I need to have my diaper changed. I need to be held. And how do we know if babies are hungry or tired or need to be held? They start to cry. They start to cry. Turns out babies have a very narrow window of tolerance. It does not take much for a baby, an infant, to lose its ability to manage its emotions, to go out of the window of tolerance. Um, this is a sermon about growth and maturity, transformation. Through the course of our life, in an ideal world, our window of tolerance gets wider and wider. It grows as we learn ways of coping and dealing with the things that happen in life and managing stress. We, we become a resilient people. We develop grit, and the window of tolerance gets bigger. So it makes sense that a baby would cry when a baby is hungry. But if a 50-year-old is hungry and their response is... If a 50-year-old man is watching his favorite team play and the team doesn't win and the man's response is... If a 50-year-old man's wife plans to do something that doesn't involve him and his response is to pout and cry like a baby... That might be a sign of... I don't know. <laughs> what is that one? That... If you too can disrupt the preacher by joining the production team, Jared would love to talk to you about that, I am sure. Uh, an auto-tuned baby crying? That's lovely. Uh, okay, what are we talking about? Okay. There are times, all joking aside, there are times when healthy, mature adults experience stresses in their life that push us out of the window of tolerance. You get fired from your dream job. You get stood up on that date. A marriage ends in divorce. There's a, a diagnosis of someone you love that's scary, or there's a death in the family, and the emotions around that 
becomes so strong, you find yourself unable to regulate it. Sometimes it pushes you up into this zone they call hyperactivation, where your mind is just starts racing, you're overwhelmed with fear or anxiety or anger, you can't calm your mind down, you find it difficult to sleep, difficult to eat, and kind of the extreme end of, of this kind of a place, they say it leads to dissociative rage and hostility and violent outbursts. Um, there's a couple of verses in Romans 12 that talk about evil. I'm not going to talk about them too much today. Eli might touch on them a little bit more next week, but I'll just say this. The longer we stay outside of the window of tolerance, the, the further we get from the window of tolerance, the more likely it becomes something evil might happen. So sometimes it's hyperactivation, sometimes it's hypoactivation. Um, you've heard of animals that play dead. There's a threat, there's a predator that, that they see, they know they are in danger, and they play dead. I've always thought they're acting, they're playing dead. Like, I, there's the bear, I'm going to fall down, but I'll keep one eye on the bear, one eye closed, just kind of make, is the bear still there? The, the people who study the brains, they study the brains of animals too. And that, uh, autom uh, that system, that threat detector system in animals, when they sense danger, sometimes it becomes so overwhelming they're not playing dead. Their brain just shuts everything down. They're completely unconscious. And it happens to human beings too. Sometimes you go into shock because of something that has happened. And sometimes it's not that extreme. Sometimes it's simply people ask how you're doing, and you're like, I'm exhausted. I just, I'm just constantly tired. I'm emotionally numb. I can't get motivated to do anything. I'm shut down. I'm experiencing hypoactivation out of the window of tolerance. And, and sometimes the best label to put on the stressors in our life that push us out of the window of tolerance, sometimes the best label for that is just the word trauma. You sh I don't know what you think of when you think of trauma. Most people think big T trauma, abuse, emotional or physical or sexual abuse or um, kids who have a parent die when, when you're just like in elementary school, or you have a near-death experience, you're in an accident, it's this traumatic event, big T trauma. There's also uh, small T trauma, lots of different things that happen in our life that have just kind of this, a lot of you in this room, I know you've, you know your trauma, you've named it, you've been working with people to get help, and, and the reason you're getting help is because you want to learn new ways of relating to the people in your life that your trauma doesn't just overwhelm you. So there's individual trauma, but there's also something called collective trauma when large populations of people go through the same traumatic experiences that's called collective trauma. If you're talking about individual trauma or collective trauma, big T trauma or small T trauma, what trauma does is it narrows our window of tolerance. Trauma shrinks our window of tolerance. And the reason I wanted to talk about this a little bit today is just to acknowledge this is the world we're living in. This is what has happened to us the last 30 months or so. Our window of tolerance, your window of tolerance, is narrower today than it was in February of 2020. And the evidence of it is it takes less and less for you to be offended all the time. 
It takes less and less for you to get angry and irritated all the time. And it's easier and easier for you to feel out of control and overwhelmed by the everyday stressors that come into our life. It has always been imperative for the church to be filled with agents of grace. And I just wanted to remind us again today, it is imperative for the church to be filled with agents of grace. When you're having conversations with people in your family or at work, and it is, you're not sure what's going on, maybe this is part of what's going on. Maybe something's happening and they're unable to manage and regulate their emotions in healthy ways, and maybe what they need most is someone to pull them into another room and say, hey, what's going on? Extend them a little grace. Extend yourself some grace. I think sometimes we start talking about this sort of thing, and it's like, why can't I just, why do I keep going into that fight, flight, and freeze? Why can't I uh, develop some new rhythms and new patterns? Why can't I just think myself into a better way of behaving? Give yourself some grace. Offer your body to God. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. A, a lot of times we think what we need to do is just try harder, just got to try harder, try harder. Uh, there's a, a woman named Andy Kolber. She's a counselor in Colorado and an author of a book called Try Softer. And I want you to watch this short clip where she's talking about the connection between our minds, our bodies, and being followers of Jesus. Take a look. I find, especially in Christian settings, sometimes there's a lot of shame hmm. that gets attached to the way our body is truly wired to handle threat. Mm. And I like to reframe this through the lens that God gave us this. Like mm -hmm. if you are about to get hit by a car, you actually want your body to go into flight. You need to move out of the way. And when that happens, the top of our brain, our prefrontal cortex, which is really important. And we may talk about that more, but it actually goes offline. Mm. And that's the same. That's true with dissociation. And so what that means is, is that our body is essentially working for our good because it's saying something feels really unsafe and I'm going to do everything possible to keep you safe. Mm. And, and I really believe that's a gift from God. Yeah. And what can happen though, is that when we have lots of trauma, whether it's big T trauma or little T trauma, that's unresolved, our window of tolerance actually shrinks. Mm. And we can often perceive things that are not a threat as though they are. Mm -hmm. And so when you say like, for example, with dissociation, you know, like if you grew up in a home with lots of relational trauma and you begin to have an issue with your spouse, your body might begin to perceive, man, this is threatening because there's conflict. And my body thinks that conflict is automatically dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so you may find yourself getting foggy, feeling like I like what you're saying, like outside of your body. And this is because our body is saying, this is, this is how I know how to protect you. And until we have a better way, we will continue on that road. Unless and until we find a better way, we're going to continue to do things the way we've always done them, hoping that that somehow will make things better. And that, of course, gets us to Jesus, the one who says, I am the way. 
Let's read together a little bit of what Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's on the screen. Read it with me. The gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. There are times in our lives we just got to ask ourselves the question, is the road that I'm traveling down leading to the life I want? Is the path that I have chosen leading to greater and healthier levels of relating with God and with the people in my life? And if it is not, it's time to change. It's time to get a a new road, a new way. And so here comes Jesus. I'm the way, he says. Let me show you. And Jesus comes to us with a body, a human body. I just think it's fascinating. The people who are studying this, they say, we got this thing, uh, the autonomic nervous system, it controls threat, fight, flight, freeze, that sort of thing. But they also say there's something in us called the social engagement system. A whole bunch of neurons scattered throughout our body, connected to our brains, and it's the social engagement network that makes it possible for us to relate to one another. And when we're feeling overwhelmed, and we find ourselves outside that window of tolerance, they're discovering what it takes to help us get back into the window of tolerance, get back into the zone, is connection. Here's the way that Kurt Thompson uh, writes about it. He says, the most effective way I can regulate my emotional tone is by my connection to you. When we feel overwhelmed and out of control, what helps most is another body in the room. Here comes Jesus, the incarnation, the embodied faith of Christianity. And Jesus enters the room with us, and he enters our fear, and he enters our hurt and pain, and he gets down in the mud with us to do this long, slow, patient, loving work of forming us and transforming us into the person God created us to be. If you're looking for change, there's no one better than Jesus. Let's stand and let's sing about the transformational power of God.